Welcome to Blockchain Won't Save the World, the podcast that aims to demystify blockchain and exponential technologies with real-world examples for beginners and experts alike. Because blockchain won't save the world. We will. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. Today, we're going to talk about blockchain and its ability to disrupt banking and payments. And I'm really glad to be joined by Jack Nikogosian. He's the CEO of Arise, one of the young and disruptive companies trying to create an interoperable network of digital cash. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Jack, I know you've been working in blockchain for a long time, but I'm really curious, how did you find your way into this space? And tell us a little bit more about what Arise is into. Yes, yeah, I have been working in blockchain for a long time, but it's funny because a long time in, in this world is years, not decades. Well, I'm 29 today. I was still in school when I first saw Bitcoin. And back then, Bitcoin was, I believe, $13 per coin. I bought two Bitcoin, probably just out of interest. And I forgot about it for a while. And then I logged in again. And suddenly I had $900 worth of Bitcoin. And that, of course, sparked my interest quite a lot. I've always been kind of an innovator in trying out new things. And what fascinated me about Bitcoin was all the things you could do with it. I created a Facebook group, uh, Bitcoin Talk Denmark. And then I met people within the space. And we had a few hundred members. And at some point, I was looking for an internship, and I asked within that group if anybody knew any Danish companies working within this space. And I joined a four-person team at a company called Bips. That company later became Coinify, one of the leading crypto brokers in Scandinavia. They make it easy to buy and sell Bitcoin and for merchants to, to accept Bitcoin payments. I stayed with that company for about five years, where uh, the last few years I was running their innovation lab, which meant that I got to build a bunch of cool products using blockchain technology with a bunch of cool partners. So smart solar panels where you can make micro donations to something we call pay as you scroll, where you could pay as you scroll to read content and online media. And that was really cool. Yeah, that was really cool. And uh, But the hard thing was uh, getting those things implemented because we were dealing with Bitcoin. And if you're paying a few cents for an article, you don't want that article to be a few dollars the day after because Bitcoin is super volatile. That's kind of the nature of it. So the underlying technology is still super interesting. The concept of programmable money is still super cool, but we needed something stable. So that meant, well, how can we benefit from the technology behind blockchain yet have something stable as we know it today, like either money or property or something that is where, where it's linked to an underlying value. So Arise, we're creating digital cash, a one-to-one representation of sovereign cash issued on digital platforms. So you have the agility of programmable networks like the Bitcoin network or Ethereum or Tron or Neo or whatever blockchain people prefer to use. But what you're moving around is actually real money. So think e-dollars, e-euro, e-yen, e-krona, and so on. Basically, I left Coinify after many good years to try to create something stable so other people can build cool stuff on top of real money instead of being limited to crypto money. So it feels like where many people start in crypto and stay in crypto, what you've seen is the benefit of digital money, digital cash, cryptocurrency to an extent and started to bring that back into the more traditional world. Is that what Arise has been up to? We're trying to, because 
there's a lot of good things behind crypto, but it's still the adaptation for people and for businesses and regulators is still very, very slow. So in order to make something which is intended for the real world, there are many different standards you need to comply with some of which are regarding KYC and AML, some of which are regarding data protection and how your data is actually managed, and others are regarding hosting. In which jurisdiction are you hosting? Which kind of hardware are you actually hosting your, your solutions on? And the banks of today have to comply with many of these different standards for the result to be secure so that consumers are, and businesses are, are protected. Within the world of blockchain, those things are open sourced. So its security comes from strength in numbers. And the bigger the network, the more secure the network and the bigger the community, because the more developers you have developing cool stuff, the more secure and trusted those networks are. That's why blockchain A is more trusted than blockchain B, for example. But within that space, the innovation happens very, very quickly and does not really take into consideration those requirements that the banks and financial institutions, they have placed on them. And we have to figure out how these technologies can be used in a smart way rather than maybe being limited to what a handful of hardcore community members might think. So some people might say that, well, Bitcoin is not just a way to transfer money. It's a way to distance yourself from government. And a lot of people believe that's a really good thing. And the main challenge that I saw were trying to get blockchain-based solutions out to the media or getting partners within, you know, I mentioned a few examples, was that it was all Bitcoin and tokenization. And people didn't understand how something can be $100 now and $120 tomorrow. And it was intangible and it was difficult. So if we could solve that, but keep you know, some of the features like programmability, we might have something that appeals to the real world. So digital cash is, we're aiming for it to become that. A digital representation of cash money and I'm saying cash and not bank deposits because there's a quite a big difference in terms of credit and market risk, but a digital version of cash that can exist on whichever blockchain or whichever protocol the client or the community needs. So we are creating something called RiseNet, which is our ledger system. It is bank-grade secure, and it is, it is hosted within IBM's data centers, and it's a cloud-native banking protocol, essentially. So funds can be kept with us in an extremely secure and transparent and efficient way, moved in and out of the banking system to and from our bank and our banking system. However, the main reason to use digital cash is that funds are backed one-to-one with central bank deposits. So we don't keep money in the bank. We don't do any lending. We don't create any credit out of nowhere. If you have $100 that you deposit, you can actually say that that money is yours. You can't really say the same if you have $100 in a bank because those $100 actually belongs to the bank and you just have an IOU. And if the bank defaults, in many situations, you're not really protected by governments. In our case, even if a rise should vanish for some reason, the funds are kept one-to-one in the central banks that, that initially printed them. I like to say we're creating digital money the way that it should have been built in the first place, where there's no doubt about its solvency and that there's no doubt about how much it's issued and where it's agile enough to work on different systems and different protocols. And we're already members of a handful of communities all around the world, uh, from the Philippines to the UK. 
And we're seeing people building solutions using our concepts of digital cash to build new stuff. Like uh, we got a guy who's working on using digital cash for a system in Armenia for people to pick up trash and then receive money for that trash in the form of digital cash, whether it's a few grams of plastic or it's a whole pallet. So trying to create a bit of a circular economy around enabling others to provide a service or a public good and then being able to reward them in a non-cash based way. Yeah, exactly. The issues with cash today, or rather, sorry, the issues with digital money today and Denmark, where I'm from, is one of the most digital countries in the world. The Danish national currency is 95% digital. So we don't use cash in Denmark. Everybody has an app called Mobile Pay and everybody is on board on that. Even for us, when we transfer money, the underlying cost behind running a, a legacy system like that is very expensive. And we've dug into it and actually seen how much companies pay to have mobile pay in their shops. Because for retail users, it seems free. But then on the merchant end, it's very expensive. And it doesn't really support cross-border payments. You can't exchange funds. And when you start exchanging funds, like sending money abroad or sending money to friends or family, there are so many intermediaries and so many added fees, even for Denmark, the most digital country in the world. So there are ways of doing digitalization, but it all comes down to how can we minimize the amount of middlemen required in either a transaction or getting access to a basic bank account. Today, we transfer money around the world. It's really inefficient. We need to keep money still and then start transferring ownership of money. I want to double click on that for a minute because I think we've covered some of the technical aspects there and we're starting to emerge with some of the individual pain points or the customer pain points or the personal pain points where the current monetary system or the current payment systems aren't quite geared up to support. So I want to take it to a human level first, if that's okay. With a rise and with the digital cash or digital money concept that you're looking at, what are the use cases? What are the specific pain points that you are looking to address first? It is all about the humans and the years I've been working in this space, I've got to meet a lot of people and travel a lot of places. And one example is in the Philippines. So I visited the Philippines and I'm members of the Filipino FinTech Association. And we kind of get a a lot of learnings of, of some of the challenges. For example, Mask, the Danish shipping company. In some cases, they hire more than 100,000 Filipino sailors that work on on their big ship for a long range of time. And in certain cases, these ships, they dock in Miami where these sailors are paid. Now, these sailors are paid for in cash because they don't have a U.S. bank account. Often, they are very limited in their opportunities of what they have financially. Nobody wants to open a bank account if you're getting a few hundred dollars every few months. So, Many of them receive cash. And what they do is they dock in Miami and then they go to Western Union and send the money back home to their families. That's one typical remittance flow of how a migrant worker receives payment and that payment ends up in the hands of a family back home. Another example is uh, one we had with one of our interns, her mom being from Kenya. And when she sends money back home to her mother, it is through a Swedish bank and then through World Remit. Then it reaches M-Pesa. And I can't believe if there was another step in between that. I believe there were. But when you look at the transaction fees associated with these payments, it is ridiculously high. So in the case of, of our intern from Kenya, her mother, when we run the numbers, she said, wow, I, I could have bought another water tank. <laughs> so when you, when you 
look into what it actually could have paid for for people who have very little, the fees associated with Western Union and MoneyGram and the banks, everything that happens in a payment flow are ridiculously high. So there are many points on how we can solve these issues. Step one is giving people easy access to basic financial services, getting a bank account, something as simple as getting a digital secure bank account. Instead of having to go to the city and going to a bank and being very limited and having to put upfront payments and doing one or the other. And with this, within this system, you can then get an IBAN in euro, an IBAN in dollars, an IBAN in Danish krona, and a bank account in your local currency. So you can get access to this kind of virtual banking And then this Filipino sailor could suddenly say to his boss at Mask, say, hey, I have a bank now, and then give his bank account. The main difference is that in our concept, we're not making money on lending. So for us, the main feature is not the size of your deposit. Where with banks, if you have thousands of dollars, they'll open a bank for you no matter what. But if you have $57 to your name, you don't get access to these kinds of services. So let's start giving people access to basic financial services. And the way that we can do that is unlike many of our competitors, where it's about making an app connected to Visa or MasterCard and then market it to the people with a government-issued ID. It doesn't really solve anything in in the end. The issue is, is much larger than that because behind these protocols, these apps that are out there today, there's still a bank that needs volume that they use for lending activities. And therefore, they're still snobbish on what kind of people they want as end users in many cases. The way Arise plans to do this is by having a digital ecosystem, secure banking network run in the cloud, regulated under banking licenses, but deposits into our bank is not part of lending. So money exists one-to-one and is backed one-to-one. So the security that we can offer is something that large corporations really want. So today we're focusing on NGOs and we have some relationships which will lead us to use cases with quite large NGOs around the world. But also in the case of the Filipino sailor, Mask could use our system to pay out salaries to hundreds of people at once, essentially with no added fees. And these people could then send the money to the families back home, again, with no added fees. So that's the dream, to have that business-to-business-to-consumer effect, whereby offering enterprise-grade corporate banking to companies like Mask or Red Cross or other companies around the world, we can create a solution where they assist in the onboarding of the end users, which are Filipino sailors in some, in some cases. But you're not trying to disintermediate banks, right? You still see that banks are an important part of the system. You're just trying to streamline it. Banks are definitely an important part of the system. I I just bought a house and I needed to borrow money to pay for the mortgage. So obviously lending has to exist, but that doesn't mean that bank money, which is essentially debt, which is based on lending, that doesn't mean that that should be the only alternative, whether it's using open banking or JP Morgan coin, a stable coin on a blockchain. It's still based on old concepts which are based on lending and essentially risk-taking. So if you build upon that and something collapses like it did 10 years ago, well, then the damage is so much worse. So we need to have essentially central bank digital cash. That's something we've been talking about a lot recent years and China is doing it. And then Facebook did the Libra coin. But the 
general consensus between modern central banks is that they cannot directly issue central bank money to the people because that would undermine the banks of today and fundamentally collapse the way the banking works today. Everybody with excess capital, every corporation with a bit of money would put the money out of the bank and into the central bank money if they could, and all the banks would default. Gotcha. And for those who are less versed in the underpinnings of macroeconomics or the financial sector, I just want to double click on that one for a second, because what you're suggesting there is that the monetary system or the digital cash is backed by central bank money rather than by regular retail bank deposits. Yeah. But in order for those retail banks to be able to fund your mortgage or to be able to lend you the money for your mortgage, they still need those deposits. How does this system then play out if you're starting to funnel money away from the retail banks? and start using the central bank currency as more of a day-to-day payment mechanism? I believe that the two systems can coexist and maybe the merger into a common system, if even that happens, would be gradual and take some time and markets would adapt to it. Let's say that you need credit. Our system does not provide that. However, if you need something where you need to lock up a million dollars in an escrow contract that lasts six months and where you need, where you know it's extremely secure for six months and then it's released to a certain partner, well, then you can just use our system because you would benefit from the fact that it's extremely secure. In the middle of that, I heard you use the word Libra, and it wouldn't be fair not to draw the comparison because it feels like their more recent white paper started to talk a little bit more about enabling the unbanked, trying to facilitate micro lending to an extent. What's your view on Libra? And is Arise trying to solve some similar problems or are they two very different propositions? Some of the issues that are being solved are, are quite similar. Absolutely. But if you read some of the first white papers, it's also about, you know, giving people better opportunities. So, you know, we we heard the song before. I'm not really surprised that that's the kind of the angle that is put. I think that this is a response to what is happening around China. And it is a way for the U.S. to, to be a part of that game maybe. The European Central Bank has also came up with some statements, and I believe that it was a rapid response to what happened around China to be a part of the global game of of central bank money. I think that Libra, I've said this for a while now, I think that Libra will happen, and I've always said it's not going to happen in that way that it was said in the first white paper. The main difference, let's say, between what we're building and theirs, let's say that there are similarities. We're trying to fix the same things. We're making wallets. We're making digital money. Sorry, we're making digital money. The main difference is they're moving everything to a corporation in Switzerland and not asking anybody for permission to do anything at all. They're just kind of doing it. Very disruptive and very Silicon Valley mindset. What we believe is that money is one of the most fundamental things of modern societies. And there's a reason why money is highly regulated and controlled. And instead of trying to push too many boundaries, we want to play by the rules. So obtaining banking licenses and working with the central banks of various countries, being part of fast track programs with regulatory authorities around the world in order to understand how can we work with you and to make this a reality? 
And what we have learned is that you follow the rules set for, for banking if you want to provide banking services. What Facebook and Libra is, is saying is we're not a bank, we're not money, we're not this, we're a platform, we're a token, we're this and that. I mean, you know, if you if you hear the thing in, in, in Congress, we're both Marcus and, and we're, we're Mark himself. There were so many questions which were good, really, really good questions, but the replies were not good enough. Unfortunately, I think it's still going to come out. A lot of people are going to use it. It's going to be super big. So the way that we fit into a world of Libra is because of the nature of Libra being also a kind of programmable money, it will function as an on and off ramp. It could function as an on and off ramp to our system, similar to card payment deposit or other bank deposit, a way to get money into digital cash basically and use it within our system. And on a bigger note, Libra would not need to have several banking relationships all around the world to do what they do. If Arise Digital Cash existed in a multiple range of currencies, because then they could just use digital cash as the backing for Libra, kind of powered by Arise. Because if there's no risk about the money being in the central banks and the solvency is done by third parties and it's a super secure system, then there's no reason why Facebook couldn't use digital cash as backing for Libra, or let's say Disney could do it for the Disney dollar, or Netflix could do it for Netflix coin. Instead of basing it on a crypto network, we say base it on central bank money instead. I love that. And definitely a big play alert. Arise making a play to be the underlying coin behind Libra. Swing for the fences, Jack. I love it. I, of course. Of course. Why not? Instead of spending a lot of money for, for them, instead of spending a lot of money and resources on establishing several banking relationships, and they can't because they're Facebook. Uh, already the, the day after Libra came out, it was not permitted in Russia. So, of course, Facebook is not going to get banking licenses all around the world. We spoke with the central bank governor of Kenya. He kind of said Facebook is not allowed here and the, message, the Libra is not going to happen here. The first thing he asked us, he said, where's the servers? The servers need to happen somewhere we trust. You know, so do you think Facebook is going to have a Kenyan shilling? No, they're not. Or South African rand? I don't think so. They would have very difficult in doing these things. But... If they purchased e-shilling from a trusted exchange in Kenya, where they're listed our digital cash as shilling, then corporate Facebook could just buy that, issue it to Ethereum, and start making the Libra coin of their own, however they want. They'll see in a few years. <laughs> That's really interesting. And I love the comparison of the different architectures between the way that Facebook's thinking about it and the way that you're thinking about it. And it shows the dichotomy of mindsets or strategies around how do we transform money and payments, because some are going the pure crypto disruption, disconnect from the system type approach, whereas you're saying rewire the system, maintain trust, because actually the incumbents, and this is something we say a lot on the show, the incumbents, whether they be governments, banking systems, corporates, whoever it might be, have a significant say in how this system may be disrupted. Disruption's coming and we know that, but it's not something necessarily that you can just say, I have the best solution, I'm going to roll it out and then bang, adoption. And suddenly banks become irrelevant because we saw that in 2018 with all of the tokens that we saw launched and how many of them failed. It wasn't because they were bad ideas or that the concept wasn't necessarily valid. But the implementation of that was very, very different. 
it was all t- about technology. Like, and people looked at it as a technological issue. Like, we can do this many transactions. Visa can do this many transactions. And it was like a battle on how many transactions per second can this blockchain do versus that blockchain. And it's kind of funny when you understand IT and, and, and computing in that way, where it's such an inefficient way to think about a way to buy milk in a supermarket that has to be mined by a, a miner somewhere else in the world as six different crypto miners that run in people's basements. However, it still forced everybody. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody. Banks and companies and regulators and people force everybody into suddenly, hey, there's a thing called blockchain. There's a thing about money that doesn't work and there's somebody trying to solve it. In the beginning, in the in the crypto meetups, it was just a few people, maybe maximum ten people who who came to the, those meetups. And today, I've had maybe three different panel debates with members of the central bank in Denmark. So we're sitting side by side, and I'm talking about what I know, and he's talking about what he knows, and together we're trying to figure out how could the future look. So it's about combining exactly how you said it. It's about combining the traditional world of finance and economics and figure out how can we make it better with the technologies that we have today. But even our concepts of digital cash and not lending money is not a new thing. If you if you search for the Chicago plan, you will find that after the Great Depression, a lot of economists, I can't remember the details, but they, they theorized a, a, a concept of, of full reserve banking. Whereas today we have fractional reserve banking and how that would look. And that has been revised and re-looked at again and again, latest in 2012 by the IMF, where they did a working paper running some simulation using modern solutions to see how would this look and could this work. And it looks like it could. And because we have different technologies in like blockchain and super fast data centers and we have mobile phones in everybody's pocket, we can actually enable these ideas that are not very new. Smart people have thought about smart stuff for a long time, but it just takes a hard time to start implementing them because you need the technology available, like you know, like with the electric car or like you know, with many other things. These are not new ideas. It, it is a combination of different things that have now been made available so that old ideas can actually flourish and become real. And it's really cool to be a, a part of that. I hear you. What a time to be alive. And I want to get into the technology now because I'm really curious. How do you build digital cash? We talked about this a couple of shows back with the boys from Signum who have done their own stablecoin in their own specific way using their own reserves. In your model, obviously very heavily dependent on central banks. How do you build that? How do you integrate it and how do you scale it? Well, step one is become a bank. And I don't say that lightly because there's so many stablecoin companies that either operate under no regulation or they do it uh, under an e-money license where they say we don't hold money, we transact money and they can hold it for a certain period of time. We say no. We know we want people to use this system, store the money and, and use it for, for a long time. Uh, so step one is get a bank. And there are many ways of getting a bank. You can either apply for a bank license yourself, uh, follow all the steps in order to obtain a bank license, or you can buy a bank that already exists. Or in some cases, you can buy a bank for not so much money if you don't buy the whole bank and you buy banks that don't really flourish. 
and you maybe see where this is going. That's kind of where we're going towards. So we are we're acquiring banking infrastructure or partial acquisition of banking infrastructure. So we want to operate as a bank. And when you become a bank by you know getting a, a bank license essentially, and this bank has an established relationship with the banking networks, uh, often the FX markets. It has maybe even some technology most importantly we don't really care about those things what they have what we care about is the relationship with the central banks they have an account with the fed and that's essentially what it's all about and that's that's very simply put because of very complex reasons you cannot in, in some cases keep all money in the fed and and there are many ways of essentially getting the bank security whether those are treasury bills or, or other other kinds of, of financial instruments there are different ways of, of getting that government guarantee but mainly primarily it's about getting a banking license that gives us direct access to the fed thereby we can also get customers well, how do we get customers well this bank that we are getting used to have a, a physical brick and mortar bank what well, we are not we have a, a digital ecosystem we call it mama which, which stands for multi-asset modular app <laughs> so we have mama a mobile wallet and we have mama business which is a is kind of a corporate banking uh, dashboard where you can access all kinds of advanced features so that's kind of a <laughs> that's kind of the way that you would would do it but the software that you use to run your bank, you better make sure that it's software that regulators want. Because what I just explained is an extremely simplified version of everything, of course. But, you know, something simple as making sure that your account management software follows the right ISO standards that financial authorities are, are used to or, or requiring. And um, there, is, there is so much due diligence in what goes on. And therefore, we are working with, you know, big players around the world. We just signed an agreement with a company called Episode 6, and that was yesterday. So um, <laughs> I can actually say that in this podcast. That's very, very nice. And we also have a, an agreement with IBM and have been working with them for quite a long time now. And so essentially, we're using banking-grade software solutions, which are already in use around the world in different scenarios. And follows the requirements that are set for banks by regulators already and then we have a lot of different features on our client layer which it goes hand in hand with our go-to-market strategy and our you know, the way that i mentioned before our, our b2b2c strategy and, uh, and our community reach and all that stuff ties in together to onboard users and enable use usage of our system Got you. And you mentioned B2B2C. It sounds like at the underpinnings, you're trying to create a traditional digital bank with a banking license to enable the ability to access the Fed to be able to have those dollars to then back the digital cash. Are we talking about a traditional bank that you or I or the average person on the street can get access to? Or is your approach a bit different? Uh, we could, um, absolutely. After this conversation, I hope that you, you know, write yourself a mental note, and and, and you know, I'll drop you a invite as soon as I can to the app. But that me and you, we're not our target audience for now. Me and you will become users of this Mama ecosystem and and using digital cash a little bit further down in the future. The the issue for us is not as big as it is for other people especially other companies. So the, 
when we look at who could benefit most from a solution like ours, we see that, well, it's the Filipino sailor. It's the guy on the scooter bringing masks to a Red Cross employee somewhere in the world. It is, you know, it is people all around the world. And the way that we reach these people is through organizations and, and companies, global organizations that help these people or know these people. And when I say people, I also refer to small businesses and farmers and uh, small family companies and even individual students and whoever may be. Our business to business to consumer strategy is, is very interesting because we don't believe in that we create an alternative to something they're familiar with and then market it to them, to the end users. We believe that the incentives should come from others, whether that is an NGO that wants to pay out salaries to an employee using digital cash and then maybe say, well, you can get 2% more in salary, for example, for the fees lost. Or it's, uh, it's uh, as I mentioned, the intern we had from Kenya, her mom, who could save a 45-minute bus trip to the city twice a week to go to the bank, to get money out of the bank, to deposit it to M-Pesa to pay out salaries. She could get a virtual bank and then get e-shilling and then use, use this. And the way that we get to these people is through community memberships and through associations that we are part of. Uh, and so the question is, okay, you want to help people, you want to go through the NGOs to do it. Well, how do you make something that the NGOs want? <laughs> and that in itself is quite interesting because in that space, there are also a lot of requirements because often NGOs, they spend our money and the government's money. So they receive grants and stuff and they have to spend it right. So they have to follow a lot of rules themselves in terms of auditing and reporting in order for, you know, the, for them to receive the next grant or for them to get the grant money out of escrow or something. Um, so within this journey, we need to learn about NGOs. And we've done that by working with ministry departments and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the Danish Ministry of Foreign Affairs has been very, very good to us. I was at the United Nations General Assembly a few years back. And we've been in this space for a long time trying to understand some of the issues associated. And that has resulted in us getting a relationship with an, with an umbrella organization called ISOBO, uh, which essentially offers a bunch of cool solutions to their members and their members being NGOs. So digital cash and all of whatever solutions we're, we're building is going to be offered to these NGOs, not by us and our sales force, but by an organization or some company that they're already associated with or members of. So it comes from a familiar place, whether that is a FinTech association in the Philippines or Isobo, an NGO um, umbrella organization, those will be the onboarding vehicle to onboard the companies, let's say Red Cross, for example. And that would result in Red Cross using our systems for various reasons, one of which being letting their employees on the ground getting money out from an ATM or something simple as that without money being frozen.
So it feels a little bit like the Uber model. While everybody thinks that Uber is this beautifully digital business that exists purely in the cloud, their go-to-market strategy still requires being present or engaging in every country where they want to operate. So it feels like you've got a few miles still to cover. <laughs> we, we do, absolutely. But our, our solution is not even live yet. You can't even go out and test it. So we're still in the building phase. But already now from our memberships of different associations, well, for example, in Armenia or the Philippines and Singapore and UK, um, around the world, we, we're already seeing uh, people building solutions on top of our systems, just starting to conceptualize them and, and joining forces to build them. So don't think of this as Arise having to have a global presence in different countries around the world uh, in order for us to operate. No, we might have an ambassador or two in the associations of those countries because like we are members of the Copenhagen FinTech Lab and we know the top 100 FinTechs in Denmark because of that, we, our, let's say, 25 ambassadors, 50 ambassadors would be all around the world and would have a presence in these labs, not in our own headquarters. And then by giving people, uh, like with, through our university approach and through our developer tools, giving people around these communities and labs uh, the opportunity to build on top of our solution, well, that means, let's say, the solution have, have being built from Armenia, the one I mentioned before with the plastic, the marketing and advertising of that solution is not going to be done by us. And the success of his app, let's say it like that, his extension to our network, that's great. That's, that's uh, this person making a great business. But this business is powered by Arise. And, and we, are the, we would be the provider, the infrastructure provider for, for that to happen. So, so it's not that we and our sales force will go out everywhere in the world and try to push our solution. No, we would be members of different associations around the world where like-minded people are building cool stuff and we'll figure out where could there be synergies and what makes sense because we know that what we're building could solve a lot of problems around the world. I hear you and I love that you've taken on the community type approach in scaling because the wonderful thing that I've observed and many others have observed from blockchain is that very quickly you can take a great idea or you can take a piece of code or you can get a working group together. Um, as in one of the previous shows we heard about IOTA, started with an internet forum of groups in Eastern Europe, in Norway, in the States and so on. And 10 years later, they're an international foundation and one of the most interesting businesses. In the same way, I suspect you're looking to scale using communities based on great ideas, which I think is really powerful. And that's one of the learnings from from Bitcoin and blockchain. That's one of the key things that you can that that we've learned is that the masses can go together, join forces, and really have an, uh, a big impact. So the community element uh, has, isn't something that has been a part of traditional banking. Say the the v Visa community. I don't know. Is 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 that a thing? I, I suspect not. It It is very much obviously a competitive one by one as opposed to an ecosystem and open play. And and I get that. It is changing though. It, it, it is changing. Yeah, I was about to say with open banking, there, there there's some interoperability and I should be fair, you know, we're also probably going to have a visa card where there's a small visa stamp on the mama card <laughs> so you can use an ATM for better or for worse. You know, and, and if it weren't for their, let's say, openness, they could just say no, but you no, know, everybody is ha has to work together now. 
But that's one of those important differences. And the ATM point, I think, is really important because if you're operating in a purely digital market or a purely digital economy, you wouldn't actually need to be in that place. You can exist fully digital and, and the, visa, the visa stamp wouldn't be required. The mere fact is that in a number of countries or in people's existing behaviours or in their day-to-day lives, cash or ATMs or the ability to transact with traditional banks or traditional uh, point-of-sale machines is still a thing. And that infrastructure is not going anywhere soon, right? No, n- neither should it. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it is a way for you to keep a, uh, let's say, a part of the government <laughs> with you on a physical piece of paper. That's, that's good. You know, if somebody takes your Wi-Fi, you still have it. And if there's not really, there's not really any way that you can't access it, uh, you don't need to stand in line in order to get it. There, there are many reasons why cash would be uh, used, and and I, obviously cash is going to be a part part of the world for a number a number of years yet. But we we as humans we tend to think that the way that things work now is the way that things have always worked, and that is not true at all. It's just that many of the changes that we are seeing now happen happens behind the scenes, and money just say a hundred years ago is not the same as it was today. Um, Denmark used to be back their money in gold for quite a long time, and and so did everybody else. But you know, Denmark stretched it for a bit. But we don't often think about those kinds of uh, of things. But money changes, and and money, the the format of value, changes quite a lot. And when you look at the amount of money in circulation today, it's a very small percentage of it which is actually government money. A lot of it are are property values or, or ETFs or, or other other kinds of papers and, and financial instruments that you know are being traded and derivatives and all kinds of all kinds of weird fun stuff. <laughs> and and uh, sorry, I should say I'm not an economist, but I've kind of became one <laughs> over the years. I like to think so. I I do have a I do have my partner in crime, uh, Morton Nilsson, who is a who, who is a highly experienced investment banker from from JP Morgan and has has worked with UBS for for a number of years and is highly highly qualified within within that world. So he is the CFO of Arise and and kind of one of the main main players of of our team. Everybody's of course important, but but without Morton, we wouldn't quite be what we are today. With this uh, this concept started quite naively. We need an Ethereum-based stablecoin. Uh, let's see how that can look. You know, I think even the the concept started with saying e-krona. How would e-krona look in Denmark? And back then, I was just writing a thesis in school together with a with a classmate. But things have evolved quite a lot ever since. And and it just in maybe what is it two and a half years now, the scope of what we're doing is quite a lot bigger and much much more concise. We know what to do and we're doing it. <laughs> so don't go start a bank. <laughs> You're going to not make a lot of enemies, but you know, there's a lot of rules to it's follow. It's not the easiest thing to do. And for very good reasons, I can well imagine. And shout to your CFO and I guess behind every great pioneer, every great founder, there's usually a CFO or a CIO somewhere behind the scenes who's doing all of the important and critical work that goes with the the vision and the strategy. So uh, obviously, shout to Morton. 
I want to talk a little bit about the blockchain technology underpinning the digital cash. So you mentioned Ethereum was part of the original concept. Tell me a little bit about how blockchain fits into your story. Yeah, so initially, as I said, I thought uh, in the beginning it was just me and a, and a classmate I mentioned, thought that, well, we need a stable coin on the blockchain and, and that would work. And a lot of companies tried that. So the Tether, Dollar, Gemini, Dollar, True, USD, Circle, Dollars. Uh, there's a lot of these. And the traditional formula is, is, as I mentioned before, you have a company with a partner bank accepting deposit and the p- company issues money on the blockchain, an IOU on a blockchain. And then the end users can transfer it on the ledger they prefer. And that's cool. That's really cool. That's a cool way of doing programmable money. But we have to realize that Blockchain technology is still a small, small, small portion of the real world that uses and understands that. We're not honestly going to expect my mom or a Filipino sailor to handle a, a crypto wallet, a Ethereum wallet, and, and manage your own private keys. Regular folks need security in other things than code. And in order to give them that security, you can give them security in form of government, and you can give people a form of security in terms of who are you working with and what partners are involved in all of the processes. That, that's, that's kind of what, what we believe. So instead of having blockchain as being an all-encompassing element of our network, we are creating a network based on, on software from, from big and established global players. I, you know, I did name drop a few before. I don't want to keep doing that. But, but we, have, we have access to really grade A software solutions to essentially run the bank software. And with this, we are able to obtain bank licenses and permissions and become our own bank. So the whole step of having a partner bank, as this would, or a vault or something, some, a place to store your money, well, our place is with ourselves because we do the hard work in order to become a bank. And we've seen how that can be done. A Danish company did it last year, Luna, they got a bank license. So it's not, you know, it's, it's not impossible. Blockchain comes into the picture when it comes to scaling and breaking the silos. Because creating one more bank, another silo that speaks within the systems of your own confine, that's quite easy. That's the easy step. <laughs> the different thing is making something that works everywhere. Because money flows all around the world and, and changes hand in different ways. So if we can say that, well, let's break down the silo and say, what's the biggest protocols we need to move money outside of our bank? Well, we need to be connected to the banking rails. So SEPA and IBAN and SWIFT networks and all, all that stuff, you know, to the banking rails. We need to be connected to the card schemes so you can deposit and withdraw money from your card or you can get a card, expenditure card. And then it's about entering the world of blockchain, the smallest one of those worlds yet. But I believe one of the most important ones, because if you could send money from your bank account to Ethereum, then you could use your money, your bank money on Ethereum. Well, what we're doing is enabling you to send government money on to Ethereum, essentially digital cash to Ethereum, and then do whatever you want to do on Ethereum with the ERC-20 token that is being created. That's not very interesting for you and me, but that means that communities all around the world, the small businesses and startups and companies and union organizations and all kinds of things, they can't even get a bank account. But imagine now having access to digital cash with no borders. You don't need a bank account. You have a bank account, you have the security of government, you have something even better. So it is about creating a way to combine our silo with the other silos, essentially. 
rather than saying it's us, us, and us, and you have to enter our system only. Like, for example, with Revolut, you have to use everything that Revolut offers, and preferably you buy the insurance from them so they earn some money or something. But our model is different. We earn the interest rate behind dollars that we keep in the Fed or from treasury bills that we purchase. That interest rate, that money that is lost usually because cash doesn't generate interest, that interest is a part of a rise's revenue stream. And we earn on that, but we don't earn any money on transaction fees between when you, when you move your money. But we require developer licenses if you want to use the money to build cool stuff, say an extension to our mama app or integrate digital cash in your store or you know, certain corporate solutions. So anytime you want to use this to build your own things, there are tools for that. And so the blockchain part really is about the interoperability or the integration between other banks, other banking systems worldwide. Yeah, and especially other developers. There are so many cool things being developed on, for example, Ethereum, from lending stuff to wallets to exchange services. There's so much innovation happening where in the real world, people are building apps and in the crypto world, people are building dApps, (laughs) distributed apps. And basically, it's different app style programs that run on Ethereum as the cloud server instead of an actual cloud server. And therefore, we're seeing so many cool things. Like you mentioned IOTA yourself. How cool wouldn't it be if your phone paid for a transaction when you swiped the terminal and your actual computing power of your phone and the terminal did the mining power? That's what IOTA wanted to do. Now, instead of trying to say, no, 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 that technology won't work or no, that's not going to happen, let's support it. Let's see if communities love it and we deem that it's a secure thing, there's nothing preventing us from saying, let's make an e-dollar on IOTA, or let's make an e-dollar on NEO, or on Tron, or on EOS. So we plug into open source communities. And the reason that these people would use us is because we're so fundamentally different from the other stablecoins out there. Yeah, I feel like we could spend an entire episode on stablecoins, but I do want to just spend a couple of minutes on central bank digital currencies, because again, that's one of the comparisons I wanted to try and draw. We've talked a little bit about Libra. We've talked about the space that you're looking to play. Is there a risk or is there a comparison with central bank digital currencies compared to a rise? Yes, realistically, we have to acknowledge that central banks are looking into, into this space. And some central banks are taking a step further than simply looking. We are also realistic about how the world works. So, for example, the Central Bank of Denmark has clearly stated that that's not going to happen. The Central Bank of Sweden states that, no, no, it could happen. But when you look at how financial markets run today and how it all operates today, the only way that a central bank-issued currency could work is if it was very limited and highly controlled. So I think that the way it's going to work If the central banks could issue money digitally to the banks and then the banks could manage their clients with banking licenses, then every single citizen of a country would not need direct access to a central bank database. Central banks are not technology companies and it is very, very expensive to manage legacy software. And if central banks were to build this system using open source software, there's no reason why a country like Denmark would pick the same reason as a country, let's say China. We would pick two different blockchain protocols naturally. It would level up the way that the world works in some cases, 
But often the, the reply and the conclusions of these reports have been, it's not worth it. That was the reply from the Danish side because everything works so well in Denmark. And then there are countries around the world where it's not as efficient. And often it is more of these exotic currencies being looked at as being digitalized. Then the question becomes, do we want the Federal Reserve to issue dollars digitally? Besides, let's say it doesn't undermine the banks of today. Let's say that companies for some reason are forced to keep their money with the banks where it's a part of fractional lending rather than buying the central bank money, which is super secure. They say, no, you can't. You have to do it this way. And individuals would not be permitted to use this. And say it's only for certain banks, certain e-money companies, and it's very limited. Then honestly, what's the point? So it could happen. I just don't think it's gonna. And I think there's some interesting parallels here because if you look at the way that digital-only banks or the open banking initiatives have spawned customer-facing innovations, functionality, how you manage your money, multiple services being provided, the likes of Venmo or N26 appearing from out of nowhere, you've seen the traditional parts of banking exist you know, the payments, the reconciliation, the kind of basic management of money, the secure store of stuff remain, but the front end of that be provided by those who are more innovative. If you can look at central banks and central bank digital currencies, you could say, yeah, okay, it's probably our role to facilitate a more efficient banking system, a more secure banking system to enable innovation to an extent. And I know some central banks and some governments have more or less of a mandate towards that. But you could say, okay, as a central bank, we can look at operating or offering digital cash, but we're not really going to do the front end. If our fractional banks can't do the front end very well and that gets outsourced or disrupted, what chance have we got? So we could absolutely be an enabler of this ecosystem or we could be an enabler of digital cash. But that's what they said that banks should be, right? Sorry for interrupting, but all these things happening, especially in Europe with open banking, that was something banks had to do. Instead of doing a, making a stablecoin themselves and then opening that up for, let's say, fintech labs or accelerator programs, they essentially, as part of government, mandated that banks need to open up their APIs. That's what they did. The banks didn't want that. So that's the route they took in order to keep the banking model the way that it exists. Having the opposite model, the one that we're building, the one that goes back to the Chicago plan, if that came overnight by law by multiple central banks, that would be quite a paradigm shift. That's why that we are working on a gradual onboarding process with specific pilot cases. I mentioned it with NGOs and, and some partners in that space. This needs to be controlled and secure. It's going to take time, but it's the right way to do it. I hear you. And I'm going to just give one more thought on the central bank digital currency before we segue into the challenges, because it feels like sure. you've got the plan and you've got the road ahead. But I also feel that even if we do see this sort of balkanized approach to an e-krona in Sweden or an e-krona in Denmark or an e-dollar or an e-yen or whichever particular country issues its own e-money, are they really going to be interested in crossing borders with that? Are they going to try and solve the type of user experience problem that you're talking about with remittances? Does the Fed really care enough about global remittances and the cost of those remittances to the citizens outside their countries enough to do something about it? Or is that more the remit of someone like yourself and Arise? And as we scale this, as we take this forward, obviously it feels like you've got the battle plan in place. You've got the banking license ready to go. You've established some of the technology capabilities underneath your proposition. What's next? What are some of the challenges you're going to have to overcome to get there? 
Hmm. Just to clarify, I wish we had the banking license in place right now. <laughs> we don't. We're not there yet.、Uh, we haven't applied for a banking license. We haven't started any mergers of the second. What we are essentially a youngish startup that completed the first successful ICO in Scandinavia, raising. A, it was a pre-sale, raising 1.6 million dollars, selling something called Rise tokens. That was what seems almost like a lifetime ago, but that was right with the crypto crash. We were a part of it, so those weeks were quite rough、uh, trying to complete this sale. But we managed, and with the funds that we have raised, we have been building our first partnerships and finding out who our first clients are, and everything that we basically talked about in this. And but most importantly, we got the partners in place and the tech in place, so、uh, we know how the software and the architecture is going to look, and we know how the first clients are going to be. And what we need is the bank license and to combine the technology and actually build the first MVP. In order to get there, we need to raise money, and we are now about, I think, a week, if all goes well, from having our prospectus ready, our 2020 white paper, where we are kicking off our Series A investment round. So we are going to be raising 15 million dollars, and in, unlike the early 1.6 million, we're not doing an ICO. We actually converted the ICO tokens to V shares in our company. And then we issued one-to-one security tokens to our early shareholders, so people have a much more regulated instrument, and they also have、uh, actual non-voting B shares within the company. And what we are selling going forward is a hybrid investment, where we're selling equity, traditional equity in, in the company with voting rights and, and all that, combined with tokens. So you also get a, what is essentially a dividend instrument. It is a We have a a buyback mechanism where, according to our revenues, we spent actually fifty percent of our gross profits for token repurchase programs. So we buy back our own shares and we burn it. So it's a way to pay out dividends essentially, and that has taken a long time to construct. And the reason why we don't see many of the the companies that came through the crazy crypto years is not only that they only focus on a technological issue. It is also that the way that they raised money was not legal, so it's often easier to close down your company. The way we raised money was legal, and we did full compliance checks on everybody who invested in our company. And the natural thing was to convert the ICO tokens we sold into a much more regulated security instrument. Wow! So not just innovating around the actual payments and digital cash. You're also sounds like you're innovating to a degree around the shareholding model and the investment model, which again I suspect we could have spent an entire podcast on, and we're probably not going to have the time. Before we close the show, I just want to give you a chance to share with the audience how can people find out more about Arise, where can they find more about yourself, and what else have you got going on in your life? Yeah, so people can find out about Arise by following our website, which will naturally get you. Hopefully, if our flow is good, to our blog where we are really good at posting cool stuff. So we interview cool people, we do podcasts, we make really interesting articles. Generally, I would I would say go to our website, which is arise.io. You can also go to mama.io, which is easier to remember, but it just redirects people to arise.io. And me personally, people can find me on LinkedIn and on Instagram. I'm quite lucky to have a, a unique last name. At, not, not so much the last name being unique, but combined with the first name Jack, that combination is is hard to miss. So if people just search for Jack Nikogosian, I think that LinkedIn and and probably Instagram pops up. But、uh, I'm mostly active on LinkedIn, to be honest.
And your last question, say, what, what's happening in my life? <laughs> the co corona situation has been quite weird. Our team is working from home. I haven't seen my coworkers and the beautiful people of Arise for quite some time face to face. However, I did manage to buy a house with my fiance just a few days before the lockdown, which was fun timing because being locked down, I could kind of do some work at the new house. I'm basically locked down in a house that is being renovated with a fiance that's working from home and a bulldog that runs around and can't figure out why this new house doesn't smell like our old house. So, uh, that's kind of me in a nutshell. I, I was, <laughs> so it sounds like you've got plenty for your Instagram feed there. Congratulations on the new announcements, the new house. Good luck with the funding rounds and the progress towards a banking license. I've learned a lot today and thank you very much for sharing your experience and your knowledge. You've got great energy and great passion for this space and I hope you go on to good things. Thanks very much again for joining the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. All opinions here expressed are those of myself and my guests. If you're looking for more, you can follow me on LinkedIn for more blockchain-related content. And until next time, stay safe out there.